Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Question, how many female jazz pianist, composers, recording artists can you name? Answer, well, after today, you'll know at least one. Bunny Beck started playing piano at the ripe old age of six and originally trained as a classical pianist. Then as a teenager, she was giving private lessons to both children and adults. But at some point, Bunny realized that it was jazz that spoke to her, and she was able to study with the likes of Lee Evans, Fernando Hernandez, and legend Harold Mayburn. In 2002, she was given the opportunity to learn from and play in Cuba with Ronaldo Gomez Ruiz and his band Jens. Eight years later, Parma Recordings released Sound Tapestries, an album of jazz standards. In 2014, Parmer released From the Spirit, featuring the Bunny Beck Jazz Ensemble. A year later, it was back to Cuba, where her jazz instrumental suite and jazz vocal suite was recorded in Havana by professional Cuban musicians. Parmer recorded six of Bunny's compositions at Abdallah Studios in Havana. The album of Razo came out a year later. Bunny's currently a candidate for an MFA in music composition at Vermont College of Fine Arts. She's a member of the New York Composers Circle and International Women in Jazz. So, Bunny, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Sandy. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, at six, you started to play the piano because your parents wanted you to or because you had a piano at home and you were trying to figure out what to do with it? Good question. I mean, no, we didn't have a piano at home, but my father is very musical, was very musical. And I had a toy piano when I was like three or four, and I would pick out little tunes. And eventually, I think my parents realized maybe it's a good idea to have a piano in the house. And so that's how it started, actually. So they bought a piano and they gave you lessons and you took to it like a fish to water? Apparently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't figure out why other people had, or other kids, Mm -hmm. had to practice an hour a day. I mean, I was practicing like 20 minutes a day or half an hour a day. It's not bragging. It's just like I realized in retrospect Mm -hmm. that it was easy for me. And then what made you start giving lessons as you got older? You know, things sort of evolve and you're not sure where it comes from. We lived in garden apartments. I grew up in Queens and uh, neighbors asked me would I, you know, teach their kids or as I say, I had a couple of adult students. I I went to the High School of Music and Art, which is now LaGuardia, as most people know. And, uh, you know, they knew I was a piano player. And and it it just, they asked me, and I said, yes, it was better than babysitting. (laughs) And so did you know that this was going to become a career for you? Going to the High School of Music and Art, I mean, you're not there to study economics. No, what was it that was going to happen to you when you graduated in your head? Okay, in my head, it was not to have a musical career. I always wanted to have music in my life. Right. Okay. Piano playing music in my life. When I went to college, I went to college to study to be a a school teacher and not teach music. However, in high school, you if you got in on piano, auditioned on piano, you had to take voice or another instrument, and I took the viola. So for the first year in college, I played viola in the in the college orchestra, but um, I I didn't pursue a, a career that was related to music in any way, shape, or form. But wasn't the assumption that you were going to have this foundation? and you were going to take that with you. That's a great question. It's a very important question. In those days, we didn't have that type of career guidance. The focus wasn't that. I was the only person in my neighborhood who went to music and art for music. There was another girl who went for art. Okay, mm-hmm. And... One tended to be a conformist in those days. Okay. And so I was like this semi-weird kid that in elementary school, I would be the person playing in the 
auditorium. I didn't like standing out like that. Mm -hmm. And so because in those days I was much more of a conformist rather than a creative type of person, I guess, or an individual, um, I chose not to pursue a career in music because it was too, quote, different, unquote, than, say, some of my friends. I understand. So it was an avocation. Yes, And it was something that gave you pleasure that you liked to do, and it didn't mean necessarily that you had to share it, and that doing so, you did one-on-one when you would teach. Exactly. So you go to college. Do you become a teacher? I do. And you're not teaching music? Correct. But there's still a marriage going on with you and music. Right. Wherever I have lived, wherever, you know, whether it's growing up with my parents or when I got married shortly after college, I always had to have a piano in the home. And actually, when my kids were little, there were some neighbors that asked me would I teach their kids piano, and I did. Right, because that was no skin off your nose. And and also, what what I loved, actually, in retrospect, the notion of the following. Since I hadn't taught piano in a long time, I thought, you know what, I could use some coaching myself. Mm -hmm. And I found this, uh, we were living in Washington, D.C., and I found this marvelous woman, Madame Dimitriev. Tamara Dimitriev, and who as a coach, and I went to her and she said, "Okay, audition for me," and I played part of one of the Chopin ballades, and she said, "Oh," she said, "Did you listen to that from a record?" I said, "No." She said, "You play this just like Vladi, as in as in Horowitz, uh, Vladimir Horowitz, <laughs> as in okay. Vladimir Horowitz. Uh-huh. a close okay. personal friend of hers." <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. well, she's calling him that. Exactly. His nickname, yeah. So, of course, I was walking on air for three days after that. No kidding. But you know, you have to you have to hone your skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you haven't been let's say, teaching something or performing somewhere. Obviously, you have to hone your skills. Sure, but otherwise you get rusty. Exactly. So at what point did this kind of take over your life and that jazz kind of came into okay. you? I had always fooled around with jazz, Sandy. When I was a kid, I would change the, the rhythm of mm-hmm. some of the pieces that I had, and I'd start doing like a boogie-woogie bass or something, and, I, and being a, quote, good girl, unquote, I thought, oh, no, no, that's wrong. I'm not supposed to do that. So apparently the, the need or the desire mm-hmm. or, or, or the motivation within me was to improvise. I had an attraction to certain sounds. I'm a sound junkie. Musicians are sound junkies. Mm-hmm. Uh, composers, we are sound junkies. I'm always looking for new sounds. But let me get back to your question. Music had always been in my life, as I mentioned. I have had multiple careers all related to each other that have, are not non-musical oriented. And I started to morph about... Well, about 15 years ago, I became a professional musician. And because I was attracted to jazz, I sought out jazz teachers and mentors. And I was working in an office. I had my own business downtown in the East Village. I rented a a piano to play in between times when clients weren't there. So in your office? In my office. You had a piano. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And two guys who lived in the neighborhood, a bass player and a sax player, would come over and we would jam. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and, and little by little it happened. And because of the kind of work I was doing at that time, I came into touch with a, a number of different types of people. What kind of work were you doing at the time? I'm a psychotherapist. Ah, okay, okay. And so two of my clients, they happened to mention the book The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which became sort of my Bible. And 
after I finished working as a therapist, I would go into like a local Japanese restaurant and sit and write from that particular book, answer the questions. I was, I was essentially soul searching in terms of develop, becoming aware of my own creative self. Mm -hmm. And that sounds trite, but that's the reality. Okay. I mean, that's what, what was the, the path that you took and that's what worked for you. Yes. And more and more, I started morphing. But, but I have to interrupt you. I yeah. mean, you started as a teacher and you wound up as a therapist? Yes. Okay. Well, I went for, I have a graduate degree in I, I'm counseling not psych. Just, yeah, right. And then um, I'm also a, a graduate of the Alfred Adler Institute of New York, which is a psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So you, you gave up a career in education. Oh, yes. I, I taught for like five years when I was first married, uh -huh. had kids, and, and, and that, I've never taught then. And then, it, and then, then something spoke to you when you wanted to do psychotherapy. Yeah. It, you know, you evolved. Yeah, I, I yeah. understand. I think what happened is when I, I was teaching in Virginia and they, the guidance counselor was putting like difficult kids in my class and she said, you know, you know, she encouraged me, why don't I consider becoming guidance counselor? So we moved back to New York and I went to NYU and got my degree in counseling, mm -hmm. but I never worked as a guidance counselor. I worked as a vocational rehabilitation counselor and supervisor. And then eventually I left that. You know, you do things for a number of years. Sure, and, you sure. Know, and then I went out on my own and did my own training and development uh, work with corporations um, in terms of employee development and so forth, which is a form of teaching, a mm -hmm. training, it's training. And then I decided to go to the Alfred Adler Institute. And so... You were open to all these yes, um, opportunities. Open to it. And also, I feel it's valuable to trust your instincts and mm -hmm. trust your gut. I'm not, uh, you know, you have to make informed decisions. You can't just go flying off. And... I also got a kick out of the fact that when I was doing all my other types of work, pre-music work, the work was oriented toward other people. I mean, now, granted, you have to use your own skills, mm -hmm. but it was oriented toward other people. Whereas as a musician, even though ultimately the, the product is, is um, heard and experienced. It's public. Right, yes. Exactly. You're doing it for yourself. I understand. And, mm -hmm. it's, and that's wonderful. The other thing, and I just want to interject this, I realized that creating as a jazz musician, you use two of the same skills as a therapist. It's analytical and it's creative, both of them, and, and we, which is an interesting parallel for me. Mm -hmm. So during this time when you're a psychotherapist, as you mentioned before, so you're jamming with this bass player and drummer? Saxophone. Saxophone player. And then something is speaking to you about this kind of marriage that you're involved with. Yes. And that, and it was it kind of, was that the seminal moment, like maybe I should be making some switch here? I think it contributed to it mm -hmm. because I was realizing that I, what I was learning and, I, and it was fun for me. What happened was I realized that we're talking about energy now. I did not have enough energy to do both psychotherapy and perform mm -hmm. and practice and, and get involved in doing all the music. Most people don't have that kind of energy. There's a tremendous amount of emotional energy that sure. goes into that. And so something had to give. And I eventually, I phased out my psychotherapy practice as I was developing more and more and more into the music world. So it was very organic. I don't know if there was a seminal moment, as you mentioned. It just happened organically. That's okay. It's process. Yes. What was that like being, I would assume, a minority as a female jazz pianist? I have to uh, assume that you were, Yes. Right? I like your question because it's an issue. The good news is I was lucky because I was able to pick up gigs right away, which was a fluke. Who did you marry in terms of your cohorts musically? One of my daughters and I were at a restaurant. 
and uh, it had opened fairly recently at that time, and they had an electric piano there. And we were chatting with the owner, and one thing led to another, and I said, you know, I said, I could play, you know, what do you, oh, do you have anybody playing with you? And he said, no, you want to come play weekend brunch? I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and I played at that restaurant every weekend for about a year or year. And at that time, one day, a customer came over to me, and she said, I really like the way you play, which was very nice. And she worked for an entertainment company. And she said, I'm going to tell my boss about you. And so she did, and that guy hired me and sent me out on various gigs. And that was wonderful. I've never had an agent or a manager. It's word of mouth. Mm -hmm. It's referrals. Mm You know, you do pound the streets. I did have demo recordings. You know, I had a little demo recording that I had made in the studio in the East Village with some guy. You kind of pound the street and you hand out your card and you hand out your CD and you speak to the managers of lounges and bars and restaurants and stuff like that. And, you know, it's tough. And is that how you wound up getting to study with, you know, these gentlemen who I mentioned, Lee Evans, Fernando Hernandez, Harold Mayberry? Okay. When I decided I wanted to become serious about being a jazz piano player, I needed to find a teacher. And somebody I ran into who was a classical piano teacher recommended, I said, you know, I told her what I wanted. And she said, well, I know of the, I know this guy, Lee Evans, blah, blah, blah. Lee Evans is great. I loved working with him. And he was who I started with. And w- one of the things that he said, why don't you go to jazz camp? And I went to jazz camp up at Eastman for a couple of weeks in the summertime, Eastman School of Music. In mm-hmm, upstate New York. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there I met a couple of more people. And then I began to go join or- jazz organizations mm-hmm. and went to Canada to a conference. There I met a guy who was putting on this program in Cuba. And this is in 2002? That's 2002. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then with Harold Mayburn, a friend of mine knew Harold, I, and I met him and we chatted. And I said, I would love to be able to take a couple of lessons from you. And so by the time I got to Harold, that was really more coaching mm-hmm. rather than basic learning theory, jazz theory, for right. example. And were you looking to make some kind of a match to be in an ensemble? Well, I did eventually because... What what happened was um, a gig came along where they wanted just more, more than just a piano player. By that time, I had networked enough to be able to know who other musicians were. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted, needed a bass player and a drummer. I inquired around, did somebody know a good bass player? And, and then I got a drummer. And so that started the nucleus of the Bunnyback Trio. Eventually, when I wanted to put out an album of my original compositions, I wanted a five-piece ensemble. And by that time, I, I, you know, you know a bunch of musicians. And if you, for example, I didn't know a good guitar player, but one of the other musicians recommended the guitar player Ed McKechn, who I love. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's a it's a world in its own. Yeah, sure, sure. But I liked your question, Sandy. If we could get back to that. Where, what is it like being a, the minority a woman yeah. in that? It's tough. As I said, I was lucky at first. A number of women in the profession, and this is going to sound weird, but it's true, have been married to jazz musicians mm-hmm. and were in that world, or they're the children of jazz musicians. I don't find that odd at all. I mean, that's the exposure. And so I was sort of like coming in. Yeah, from the outside. And so there was this attraction back and forth with Cuba, which I guess is a little anomalous, don't you think? It could be anomalous. I think it's just a coincidence. I think it's just happenstance in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, the first time it was deliberate. I'm like, ooh, I want to go. Okay. It was not in Havana, by the way. It was elsewhere. 
And now we fast forward to 2015 and Parma Recordings contacts all of their artists, all of their composers, and says, call for scores because we have this special project that in Cuba we've, Parma made relationships, developed relationships with Cuban musicians to have Cuban musicians record the music of American composers, mm-hmm. which was the first time in 60 years that yeah. something like well, that Yeah, well, sure, happened. this is, it's still off it limits, was, yeah. I mean, I went to Cuba in 2001, and I did it by sneaking in. Oh, you snuck in? Yes, so, I mean, you, you in 2002, I mean, you were invited there, but Americans being in Cuba were not very common. For sh- Absolutely, and... I had to go by way of Montreal. Mm-hmm. I had to go by way of Canada. Did you? I went through Mexico. There we go. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're in Cuba and you're performing and you're recording and this is your career now. This is what your life is, yes. right? Could you believe it? I can't believe it. Um, I am composing now. That's my focus. Uh-huh. And I am composing um, uh, contemporary classical music. Mm-hmm. I compose jazz as well. But because of the MFA program that I'm in, we're required and love it uh, to compose every semester. And then our works are performed by very, very great professional musicians twice a year Mm -hmm. in Vermont. And so I've composed for string trio. I've composed for saxophone quartet. Right now I'm composing for percussion, pitch percussion, such as marimba, glockenspiel, and vibraphone, as well as non-pitch percussion, you know, drums and Mm -hmm. cymbals and so Mm -hmm. forth, which is a challenge, but it's a labor of love. And I love composing. I mean, I figured I've composed about... 25 pieces in my lifetime, some of which have been recorded, you know, such as on Abrazo mm-hmm. and also on From the Spirit. And there are a bunch of others. <laughs> Do you ever work with other women? Uh, in terms of collaborating or, or, or performing. performing? I mean, you're still an anomaly? Oh, no, I'm not an anomaly in that sense. Oh, yeah. International... Uh, International Women in Jazz, Mm -hmm. we perform together. Mm -hmm. Um, We have something called First Mondays where there's a lot of jamming and so forth and so on, and and also accompanying singers. I was going to ask about that. Do you do that? Oh, Uh yes, I do. And I've I've accompanied classical singers as well. Not a heck of a lot, but I have. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're currently in school and you're writing and you're also performing, and you have your own group that you perform with, or do you do a lot of, quote, freelance work? I do a lot of freelance work. We don't we don't move as as an, a unit? an entity as a mm-hmm. unit exactly, and that's not unusual in that field. The other thing is, I've applied for a grant from Chamber Music America. They have a grant for jazz artists, mm-hmm. and um, you have to do it not not as an individual, but as a, as an ensemble because it's Chamber Music America. And they mm-hmm. have a, a jazz division, and so. I, the people of the Bunny Beck Ensemble, who are on, you know, from the Spirit um, CD, are my ensemble mm-hmm. for that. Uh, they are all members of the Bunny Beck, you know, jazz ensemble. No, but otherwise I'm freelancing. Cuba is obviously international. Where else have you performed that's not in the States? Uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, I was down there on an interesting program called uh, Samba Meets Jazz. You're working with other musicians, and we're doing both Brazilian music and jazz music and so forth. And, and there are workshops, and you're really learning a heck of a lot. But you're also performing. So um, I performed in, a, in two jazz clubs down there. One is called The Maze 
which is like this wild place. And the other, I forgot the name of it, but it's part of one of the hotels, right? Mm-hmm. On Copacabana. So you're still performing. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. In addition, like I said, in yeah. addition to the composing. One thing that's important is I'm not a featured performer. I'm a background musician. Mm-hmm. So that if an individual or a corporation has a party or an event um, or any kind of event, for example, every year I'm asked to perform at the Friars Club. Not for the Friars Club, but for a corporation that has a that big... That rents out the space, you it mean? It rents out the space and they have a big event. And, and that happens a lot. I perform at country clubs, restaurants, town clubs. So were you able to earn a living doing this? Uh, partially. And you're still recording? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm compiling a body of work. Right now I'm not recording at the moment because I'm focusing on composing mm-hmm. and work. I will be. In fact, interestingly, I just wrote to Bob Lord, who is the CEO of Parma Records, and I told him, too, that I'm writing for percussion. And so I might indeed gather up a body of my work and record again. Yeah, I mean, I, I plan to record. So, you know, that's in the future, too. The other thing is my string trio will be debuted in New York this coming fall. And... Um, you know, my pieces will be debuted in New York, and then you let people know. You mm-hmm. know. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you started this as an older person. Yes. So, you know, talk about that not only being female, but being an older female. Did that pose problems? Uh, did you have to break barriers for that? No, no. Knock wood, I've been lucky. I don't, I don't have a sense that I'm discriminated against. Or dismissed? I'm, no. Mm-mm. I would still sort of think, I mean, obviously music knows no age limits, but I would have to think just being female and older female just makes you stick out or puts you in a different kind of category. It should, Sandy. It should. You're, I mean, yes, I agree with you, but I haven't found that happening personally. I mean, that's great. Well, we've run out of time, Bunny, but we're going to end our conversation with a selection from the spirit from uh, that features the Bunny Beck Jazz Ensemble. Don't you think that's a perfect way to end uh, this conversation? Thank you. I'd be delighted. Okay. Then we're going to sit back and enjoy. And thank you so much for sharing your life with me and with our listeners. And join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, and here's the Bunny Beck Jazz Ensemble. Music 